Thought we'd go again to one of our experts, Bruce Wiley, Executive Director of FICOR, the Public Health Informatics Computational Operations Research, and also a professor at SUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy, to get some answers. Bruce, thank you for coming back on with us. Thanks for having me again. Okay, I want to ask, begin with a, with a fundamental question that, that seems so basic, but the government doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of answering it. We do know that once you get COVID and it's passed, you have a degree of immunity. You have, you know, protection for a period of time. Why is it so hard for us to take that into account when we're trying to figure out who is protected in this country and who is not, particularly with President Biden's recent speech about, you know, dividing the country basically into two, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, but what about the vaccinated, the unvaccinated, and the people who have had it who have natural immunity? Why is that not taken into account? So I should add that you're likely to have natural immunity if you've had it. So there's been studies that have shown that not everyone has antibodies after getting the infection or recovering from infection. So this has ranged from 5% to 36% to even more than that. Uh, so, for instance, there was a study that was um, came out in emerging infectious diseases that said, I believe it was like about a third. So that's not clear. So just because you've had COVID-19 doesn't necessarily mean that you all have antibodies and enough immune protection. That That's the problem because it's variable. But, so but wait, 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 wait. I have to I have to stop you there. That's a remarkable statement. Given yeah. all the news that we have heard, no one has come out that I have ever heard and said you might not have immunity after you had it. Not only that, but you know the, the most recent news is like these studies out of Israel, which show that natural immunity might be 10 times more effective than vaccine immunity. Now you're saying that it's possible you, don't, you, could not ha- you might not have any immunity even after you had it? Yeah, the challenge is, is COVID-19 is very variable. So it ranges from not having any symptoms to having mild symptoms having more severe symptoms to, of course, getting hospitalized. So there's a wide variety of presentations. And then there's that recent study that was published uh, in early September that found that only 30, uh, that 36% of people who've had COVID-19 didn't end up having antibodies uh, after recovering from COVID-19. And that was published in, in the journal Emerging Infectious Diseases. So the jury is still out there in terms of like what percentage of people actually develop immunity and how long that immunity actually may last. So that's the challenge right now. Wow. That is pretty disturbing that you could have, on the one hand, a study that says a third of people don't have immunity, and on another hand, a very wide-scale study, I mean, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, however many people they had, that showed that, that natural immunity was more powerful than vaccinated immunity. I mean, that's like having something on the 10-yard line and, 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 and on the, the 90-yard line, you know, in terms of trying to make sense of what the proper thing is. How, how can anybody go forward with such dis- disparate information? Yeah, the challenge is this, this uh, problem that COVID-19 is very variable. So you can have all kinds of symptoms and your body can respond in different ways. And I want to add that the 36%, that study showed that 36% don't have antibodies. They don't necessarily have no immunity, but they don't have antibodies. And that's one of the measures, the key measures of of immunity. So they could Mm -hmm. have some type of protection, but they don't have the full degree of protection. So both those statements can be true. And you could have 
the people that have the antibodies could be protected, like we said, 10 times, but then it could be ones that didn't get any that are not, right? So both of those could be true. Yeah, there's a fair amount of variability, and, and we have to remember that this is one of these situations where it's a, it's a moving target because, you know, COVID-19 has only been around for for a year and a half or so. So uh, researchers are still trying to figure out to what degree of protection you're going to get from from having COVID-19. So that's the challenge right now. Um, that, well, they're also you- also trying to determine what degree of protection you're going to get from a vaccine. I mean, they don't know how long that lasts either. That's true. The difference, though, is you have you know a large group of people that they're actually following. So you, you have you know, these these trials had tens of thousands of people in them. So they're regularly following what's happening with them. So you have a better idea of what's happening after the vaccine. And plus, the vaccine is you know very specific. It's the same amount to every person. So it's different. Uh, compared to COVID-19, because your your uh, degree of infection could vary quite significantly. Now, I'm also reading uh, some cases. There was a story in, might have been USA Today or uh, another publication this week, about people who are just having long-term effects of COVID-19, just, just months and months of just not quite being able to shake it. It's not, they're not debilitated. They're not, they're not dying, and they're not in the hospital. But they're not well. You know, they don't feel totally well. Can you talk about those cases and and what are we learning from those? Yeah, that's another concern of COVID-19. So people talk about deaths, which, of course, is a big problem. But even people who recover from COVID-19 may have continuing symptoms or continuing problems. uh, And that's been dubbed long COVID. uh, And some studies have suggested that maybe up to a third of people who recover from COVID-19 may end up having long covid and that can range from really severe debilitating symptoms to more mild, but still things like anxiety or depression or difficulty breathing or fatigue and things like that. So studies are underway to really figure out you know, how long these symptoms are lasting. Uh, you know, people, there are people who developed COVID-19 or had COVID-19 early on in the pandemic that still are having these symptoms. So it's hard to tell how long these may last, but it's something that's that's a significant concern as well. So you don't just necessarily recover from COVID-19 and everything's fine. You might have persistent symptoms. And is there is there any pattern to who gets hit with the long-term symptoms versus not? Yeah, some of the studies have tried to look at, you know, is there a correlation? You know, is it just the people who have more severe COVID-19 and then they have lingering symptoms? But there is uh, it, it, there hasn't been an established pattern. So there are people with more moderate or mild uh, COVID-19 that can still develop the so-called long COVID. So one of the challenges is there hasn't been enough studies because this is naturally a new phenomenon. So people are trying to follow what's happening with people with long COVID and see what happens. All right. Tell me about the, the, this debate that's going on between the CDC and other elements about whether booster shots are necessary or are not necessary for the general population. I know that there's, uh, you know, some talk about giving it to uh, immunocompromised people who are older. But in the general sense, we're getting a lot of mixed signals here about booster shots at eight months or booster shots not necessarily being necessary. Yeah, that's the challenge because we really need to wait until the actual science is clear before making declarations about booster shots. As you recall, about a month ago or even before that, you started hearing word of, oh, booster shots will be needed. But we really need to look at the data. The scientific community needs to look at the data and see, like, to what degree are people's protection waning 
and when is it actually starting? So there's talk of data here and there, but we really need to see all the data together to make that decision. And I think that's that's the challenge right now. Let's get a better sense of what's really happening before we make a decision about booster shots. Right, but but, but the reason that average people like myself and like our listeners, I think, are so confused is because high-level, respected sources are saying different things. So you have the Biden administration, all right, if people, the handful of people who are left in the country who actually respect the presidency and respect the, you know, whoever's in, in office and administration, they have come out and said most Americans are going to need a booster shot eight months after their first shot. The president himself said this. Now you have an international group of scientists in the Lancet, which is a pretty well-respected medical publication, right, saying fully vaccinated people in the general public don't need booster shots at this time. And two members of the FDA who are now uh, resigning, apparently, because they have differences with, with the Biden administration, also say boosters aren't necessary. So how are the average folks like us supposed to, to, to make a decision about ourselves when the top level people seem to be in disagreement with one another? Yeah, it's been a continuing issue throughout the pandemic. When you heard about booster shots early on, there wasn't enough data at the time to really make a distinct decision. So it should have been communicated uh, in that manner, saying that, okay, well, we're still looking at the data. It's not clear yet when booster shots will be needed. And really, there shouldn't have been an announcement until people are sure, until the scientific community is pretty clear about it. And I think, you know, we, we're, that's why we're in this situation where there's, there's confused messaging. Um, where you have messages coming out, you know, sooner than the science has really established um, established which way to go. Right. Talk to me a little bit about uh, vaccines for young children. Um, I, I personally believe that we will never get to a point of people stopping to fight with fighting with one another over vaccinated versus not vaccinated until all children are have an option for vaccine because the, the thing that you keep hearing people talk about who are vaccinated and everybody says, what are you worried about? You're vaccinated. Why, why, why are you acting like, you know, you, you have to kill these other people who aren't, they're the ones who are at risk, not you. And what you get back is, well, yes, but they might be carrying it. They might give it to me and I might pass it on to my children and children, of course, are this area under 12 now who are not vaccinated, and, and everybody is worried about their own children, clearly. And so if we were at a point where children were vaccinated from, from birth or whatever, then I think people would end up saying, fine, you know, my family's protected, and I don't have to worry about it, and you people who aren't vaccinated, you go, go and live your lives. So I think this children vaccine thing is, is a very, very important linchpin in the progress of whatever's going to end up happening with COVID, now they're testing stuff on five-year-olds to 11-year-olds and things like that. What, what's the latest on that? And what are the risks inherent in, in giving a vaccine that has been proven safe to over 200 million people, adults? Why is it risky for children? Yeah, so the latest word um, from Pfizer is that likely in the next few weeks, they're going to be assembling an application for an EUA, emergency use authorization, for for kids under 12. If that's the case, if they can get that application in sometime in September, then that uh, that would suggest 
you know, typically the, the FDA will take about a month to make that decision because they have to go through the different uh, procedures and processes and, and checkpoints. Um, that would suggest that potentially sometime in October, we'll get an EUA for, for kids under 12. So that's the current situation. Of course, the Pfizer vaccine is the, was the first one to get an EUA in the first place. So Pfizer is sort of leading the way. Moderna and J&J will be at some, some point later. That's the latest in terms of the timeline. Uh, now, the question about, you know, what's different about kids? Well, kids, you know, they're smaller to get. They, their physiology is a little different. Their, their distribution of their um, body tissue and their circulation is different. But there's not an anticipation of, of major differences. Now, there may be a difference in dosing. So they may get lower doses because they're smaller. Um, but, we, you know, the, the scientific community has to make sure that it's actually safe for kids because there are examples of medications and other types of interventions that work differently amongst kids versus adults. Uh, but with vaccines, there tends to be less of a difference. Mm. Well, that's going to be a, a red letter date, I'm sure. Mm. And uh, coming up, I guess, in some point in the next month. All right, Bruce, uh, thank you very much for all that information. And uh, it's a lot to absorb. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep trucking along here trying to, uh, trying to make sense of it all. It's not easy. That's good. Thank you for your time. Thanks, we appreciate it. Bruce Wiley here with us on 760 WJR from FICOR and uh, SUNY Grad School of Public Health and Health Policy.